Thanks so much for being with us on this Tuesday, March 1st. Another busy day, but we are starting once again with what is happening in Ukraine and the Russian aggression on the ground. We'll get to the very latest on that, and you'll hear updates on that throughout the afternoon. But right now, we want to check in with a man by the name of Ole Heleniayuk, who is going to Ukraine very soon to join those forces against Russia. And Ole is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for taking a few moments with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you came to be in Metro Vancouver and what it's been like watching the aggression, watching the Russian invasion from here? So I came in November to Vancouver as a visitor because my friend invited me to explore BC. I love hiking, nature and skiing. So that's why I came to BC. Uh, so the first day of war met me in this way. I was doing my Aikido training in Vancouver. And uh, after Aikido, I saw the missed call from my girlfriend. I knew it was 4 a.m. in Ukraine. So right away, I understood that something happened. I checked the news and I saw that uh, Putin started the uh, war in Ukraine. So the feeling was uh, shocking, awful. I just called my girlfriend and she said me that you woke up at 4 a.m. from explosion. I set her to pack her stuff and drive to our hometown, in, if I drive from Odessa to our hometown in West Ukraine. And uh, I was uh, checking all, uh, all information uh, with, the, with the traffic because uh, there were bombing around Ukraine and uh, some cities on the way from Odessa to our home city in West Ukraine were also were bombed. So uh, I was checking all information. Some roads were closed. Uh, some gas stations were running out of uh, fuel. It's so hard. To, it was so hard to get from Odessa to West Ukraine. A lot of traffic jams. Yeah. So this was the first day of war. It was horrible. I couldn't sleep. Couldn't eat. And I was checking the news like each 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 minute. And. Um, on the second day, I just like felt like someone put a knife in my heart and it was so, yeah, so hard to watch from here what's going on. My family there, my friends, uh, my, my roommate is defending Kiev right now. He, he went uh, volunteering. Uh, despite nobody of my friends had any military experience, all of them are like with an education and a uni degree, but they joined, joined to, to, in this time to help Ukraine. And when are you planning then to go back and where will you go? Um, I'm, uh, I'm going, uh, I'm, I'm flying from Vancouver tomorrow in the morning. I'm flying to Vienna, Austria. And then uh, from Austria, I will, I will be heading to the border. So uh, now I'm collecting uh, some humanitarian help and some uh, uh, protect, uh, protective gears for, for defenders in Kiev and some medical stuff here in, in, in Vancouver. Then I will collect some more stuff in Vienna and, uh, and I will go to the border. Uh, I wanted to mention, Ole, we are also uh, joined on the line by uh, Father Mihailo Azorovich uh, with the Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in New Westminster. Uh, Mihailo uh, Azorovich, thank you as well uh, for joining us. What are your thoughts uh, when you hear this and watching what is happening and unfolding in Ukraine? Well, with, you know, I, I 100% relate with Oleg's feeling of, you know, knife going into the heart and, and watching the devastating invasion and the killing of civilians and, and children and uh, everything that you see on the news 
and even more so from from people from there. But but also uh, seeing somebody here, Oleh, being willing to sacrifice the comfort and the luxury of life in Vancouver uh, to go and uh, join the, the forces, you know, be it volunteer forces, be it territorial defense units, be it uh, military forces in, in defense and help and in support of those there. So such courage um, that has been shown by Ukrainian armed forces till now in Ukraine is also present here among our men and Oleg is the great example of that. So it's inspiring and um, very encouraging because with, with people like that, with commitment like that, with sacrificial uh, attitudes like that, uh, you know, victory, uh, Ukraine will prevail. I understand you and also members of the congregation are hoping to send a, a lot of help and aid in, in different ways as well. Yes, everybody in local community here in Vancouver uh, have been trying to do something and raise funds and, and bring bring in supplies, medical supplies, uh, to um, send send it off to Ukraine because none of that is possible to buy in, of course, in Ukraine. But now we over, uh, even Poland is low on supply, and even countries like uh, Germany and Vienna are running low on supplies. So we want to deliver this aid from here as soon as possible and finding ways of sending, you know, small and big parcels, uh, air cargo and individuals like Oleg, uh, so it can get there as soon as possible, because time is of the essence in this uh, war. Uh, Ole, I want to bring you back in because you mentioned something as well about so many of the people that are defending Ukraine are people that don't have military training or a military background, but are just doing an absolutely amazing job in in that defense and, and keeping those Russian troops at bay, sending them around. What are your thoughts on, on when you get there? I mean, it's, it, it must be one thing to be here and to be mentally ready to go, but what are your thoughts on what it's actually going to be like when you get onto the ground and when you cross over that border into Ukraine? Uh, so I don't know. Like we'll see. First of all, I will go to to, to my hometown and then I will uh, join my friends who coordinate the supplies to the frontier. And uh, when I am called to serve my country, I will do this, of course. So I'm, I'm first of all, I will be helping the the, the army and the frontier with the supplies with all people, all, all stuff, and then necessary necessary goods they need. Um, so we are so encouraged right now, like the spirit is so high because of the stake, our independence and the world's democracy. That's not only fight for Ukraine, this is the fight for the world, world's democracy. And uh, we can, behind our backs, uh, our families and the loved ones. Uh, so, but behind the Russian army, there is just, that's why we, pre, we just prevail them with the, with the spirit and the, uh, also, this um, the world's support means a lot for us. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for informing the society about the, what's going on in Ukraine. It is. It's different in how much access people have, whether it's live camera feeds or social media feeds, and people getting information, uh, correct information out of that zone. Uh, what are your thoughts when you mention the world response? Would you like to see more done as far as supporting Ukraine, or what are your thoughts on the support that you've seen so far? Yes, yes, yes. We would like to ask the world to support us with the concrete things. We uh, need the really like military stuff for Ukrainian defenders and uh, the readers some humanitarian help as well. And uh, yeah, so the small donation from each citizen and the all actions. Uh, I, I would just uh, 
I would like to ask the each Canadian to ask yourself how you can help in this situation, and God will bring you the chances to do this. I'm, I'm sure. Just uh, yeah, because uh, this is uh, this is can happen to anyone. Uh, that now nobody has a guarantee uh, security right now, especially with the with the, with the Russia. And uh, Mihailo Azorovich, I'll bring you back in as well. And I know uh, we touched on this and what members of your congregation are doing to help. What are your thoughts on the response by uh, other world countries, including Canada, and how people can get more involved? Well, um, there's always more that can be can be done. So for our community here, it's important to be able to uh, welcome uh, refugees and this, uh, those who are displaced by war. So uh, visa-free access to Canada is, is important, is crucial to make it easy for our loved ones to, to come and find safe haven here uh, from uh, bigger, uh, you know, bigger items would be the NATO's closing the airspace over, over Ukraine. Um, that's important uh, as well. Uh, more sanctions. We know that uh, most of the countries have not uh, used all of the tools in their disposal uh, against Russia. Uh, and the local community here uh, joining in the fundraising efforts, uh, whatever you see happening around your local uh, Ukrainian hall, Ukrainian church, or uh, be it even bigger organization like Red Cross or Catholic Near East Welfare Association delivering humanitarian aid, because uh, this crisis is, is the war has started and ongoing. And the crisis has started and it's ongoing and it's going to be for many more uh, months and years that we will need support to rebuild what we have just lost uh, due to the invasion of Russia. And Ole, I'll bring you back in as well. When, you, when you've seen what's happening, there have been casualties. There have been uh, some buildings that have been leveled in the fighting. What is the response from your loved ones and family on the ground to your returning, to you coming back there to help? Uh, so I, I, I wasn't advising with them. I just said that I made a decision to come. So first of all, they asked, OK, why would you do this right now? I said, because I can't do it another way. I feel I'm, I'm more needed there than here. Uh, so they tried to to, to convince me uh, just maybe with a, for, for one minute more, and then they understood this and said, okay, so we understand. My mother would do this. Uh, my mother is a great example of this because uh, she was uh, in the Berlin in Germany. Just uh, he arrived, uh, she arrived to Ukraine just two days before the war started. Mm-hmm. And uh, despite she knew that uh, something uh, could happen, and a lot of German friends uh, were asking her to, to stay in Germany, but she refused and she came to Ukraine. She has a small restaurant and now she's feeding a lot of people in Kolomea, West Ukraine, helping, helping uh, people. And she's happy that she is in Ukraine right now, not in Berlin. There are talks aimed at stopping this conflict, at ending this Russian invasion. Do you have any confidence that it will end sooner rather than later? Um, I don't. I don't think it's going to end soon because, as Father Mihailo said, not all nations did. All, uh, all all tools they have in their disposal, and the Russians still have uh, some, some you know, some some power uh, to, to to continue this war. So we need really like the the uh, 
bigger help and more help from the world society, from the world democracy, uh, in order to, to win and to defeat Russian aggression. All right. Well, Ole, thank you for joining us today. And uh, I, I wish you all of the safety. And uh, I, uh, we will be hoping, uh, we'll be hoping to get updates from you and want to talk to you uh, again soon. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for informing the society. All the best. All right. And Father Mahilo, is there anything you wanted to add before we say goodbye for today? Please continue to pray for Ukraine, to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. It's not uh, about one individual making uh, a whole difference in the world, but it's all of us standing together for what is right, for what is true, for what is light, uh, and that is uh, Ukraine nowadays. And uh, yeah, continue your your, your support and, and prayer and encouragement. Thank you, Jill. All right. Thank you to both of you as well. Thank you. Just a reminder, we will be carrying most of that news conference scheduled for 1 p.m. today. We'll carry that live right here on the program. Right now, though, we're going to shift gears a little bit and take a look at the economic impact of the Russia invasion on Ukraine. And what will that mean for things like oil and gas, the oil and gas industry, as well as some other industries that we might not think of immediately when it comes to what's produced specifically in Russia? Well, joining me to talk more about this, this is Pedro Antunes, the Chief Economist with the Conference Board of Canada. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, can we start with oil and gas, and that does seem to be kind of at the top of the list as far as what people are focused on or looking at when we look at Russian production of worldwide production. So what, what are you seeing as far as impacts on that particular industry? Well, I mean, interestingly uh, enough, we've uh, seen the, the impact even before uh, Russia went into Ukraine, and we're seeing uh, the ramifications now uh, exacerbated. And this, uh, essentially, uh, there's concern that uh, Russia may not be able to get its uh, oil and gas out, or, or uh, you know, essentially uh, not be, or, or essentially decide to cut off uh, uh, Europe, uh, which is, uh, you know, obviously a very dependent on, on Russian gas in particular. So uh, prices have come up. Uh, they've skyrocketed, really. Um, oil prices, in fact, Brent, I was just looking, uh, Brent oil prices now uh, closing in on $105 a barrel. Uh, natural gas prices have taken off as well. Uh, so obviously, you know, this is an oil price shock uh, for, uh, you know, most consumers, for most economies. Uh, this is a costly impact of, uh, you know, the, the repercussions of this, uh, this war. What will it mean to other markets, do you think, even places including Canada, as far as if things become more difficult for Russia to sell its products? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, it's interesting for, for Canada, of course, uh, a lot of the commodities that uh, Russia and Ukraine produce are uh, also produced here in Canada. And we can think of oil and gas as being, uh, you know, a key example. Uh, but if we go down the long list, uh, I mean, uh, cereals, oil seeds, uh, potash production, you know, Russia is uh, uh, one-fifth of global potash production. Canada is a very big producer as well. So all of these products, uh, you know, essentially what we are expecting is to see uh, an increased demand for Canadian production, increased prices for Canadian producers. So it's a very mixed bag of impacts for Canada. We're going to see some provinces and some sectors, you know, essentially reap the benefits of that. Um, but, of course, this is a shock to inflation. It's a shock in higher prices, higher food prices, higher energy prices from a situation where we're already seeing peak inflation across Canada and across the world, in fact. 
So for many consumers, this is going to be very, very costly. Uh, because I would imagine in some markets, it would be much easier to fill the gap if you're able to, uh, if you're a country, like you say, like Canada, that makes a lot of the same things. But it's not as though if we're looking at oil and gas, so it's not as though the infrastructure is magically going to be there to do that. So are there not obstacles there in that even if the demand is higher, it doesn't necessarily mean that Canada can meet those demands? Well, that's right. I mean, essentially, we are going. I mean, oil is is uh, much more of a global commodity. It's uh, much easier to get oil, um, uh, you know, overseas uh, to once it's at tidewater and overseas. Of course, Canada has some limitations in that, but you know, I, I think overall, uh, when we see Brent prices, which is a European standard for oil, uh, come up, we also see. Uh, West Texas Intermediate, which is the North American standard, and of course Western Canada Select, which is, uh, you know, essentially what Alberta sells. So those those prices will come up. Uh, with respect to natural gas, you're absolutely right, and this is a concern about Europe, uh, for Europe in particular, which uh, imp- you know, essentially Europe imports 43% of its natural gas from Russia. It's very dependent on that source of uh, of energy, uh, and of course, much much more difficult to displace. Uh, that you know we're still in, in winter, and uh, you know it, it would be it would be devastating for Europe's economy if we would see natural gas in some way cut off. Uh, one of the other industries or the other uh, products, I didn't realize this, that Russia produces so much of the world's neon and uh, how much neon is used when we're talking about the production of semiconductors uh, in the automotive industry. Well, how big of an impact or what impact do you think we're going to see there? Well, uh, again, this it, it, when we look at the sanctions that have put have been put on Russia, they are going to increase the cost of doing business. Uh, they are going to um, cause delays, um, but they're not going to completely cut off supply uh, for, uh, especially for some of these key products. So we think that the flow will continue to happen, but the extent of these restrictions uh, and sanctions on pr- on production and on exports is really hard to figure out. Uh, I think the point is that for Computer chips. We're already globally seeing, uh, you know, essentially supply chain constraints and and production being hampered. Uh, we're not able to produce cars in North America as, as much as demand would dictate uh, because we don't have computer chips. So this is um, just another piece that adds to those supply chain uh, problems, um, you, you know, and um, essentially to inflation down the road. And when you ta- when you talk about interest rates and what we've seen as far as inflation already uh, hitting a lot of people, but if we look specifically at Russia and what's happening there, the devaluing of the ruble, the interest rates specifically in Russia, is that the focus or is that kind of the in- intention when we're talking about these sanctions? Well, uh, yes, essentially. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think ultimately the intent of the sanctions is to kind of destabilize the current regime that's there and, and hopefully see the uh, uh, the President Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, essentially dethroned there. Um, because the decisions that he, he's made have been tragic, uh, tragic for obviously Ukraine and its population, but also tragic for the citizens of Russia who are having to deal with uh, with these uh, these sanctions, not necessarily uh, agreeing with uh, the direction the country has taken. 
but yeah, um, Russia. Let's not forget it's uh, uh, the world's largest, eleventh uh, largest economy. Uh, it's um, you know it's uh, on par in terms of the size of its economy with Canada's. Uh, so it is a large and important economy in the world, and it is going to be decimated uh, short term and longer term. We think by uh, by the outcome and, and the uh, um, you know the, the path that its president has taken its, this country on. And just one other question then, and this one, obviously, we don't know how long the Russian invasion is going to continue or how long this act of war will continue. But what are your thoughts then on, again, the economic impacts of this the longer it goes? Well, I mean, that's an extremely good point. Um, I think, obviously, um, the longer this lasts, the the more dire the implications, certainly for Russia uh, and the demise of that economy. Um, I think uh, for the rest of the world, you know, if this is a temporary uh, price shock that we see and we and we see things getting back to normal more quickly, uh, you know, it would be modest impact, I think, for, for much of the rest of the world, especially for Canada, uh, which is kind of far outside of the financial system affected by, by Russia's demise, etc., um, but there's really no telling uh, how long this will last, whether it will escalate. I think, um, you know, you and I are concerned as our citizens across the world about, you know, what the next, uh, the evolution of this and, and uh, where it will go. All right. Pedro Antunes, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today to talk more about this. You're welcome. It's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We're going to talk now about rules and specifically rules when it comes to building, when it comes to perhaps changing a wall, having an exterior design. And if you've not had to do that yourself, you might not have had to deal with the red tape that often comes with that, of course, depending on what city or municipality you are attempting to build in. But my next guest has and was sharing a lengthy document on social media. Bryn Davidson is the owner of LaneFab Design and Build and joins us on the line now. Bryn, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Before we get into what you had posted and some of the issues with that, remind us again, what exactly uh, do you do? What is LaneFab Design? Uh, We are a custom designer and builder of homes. So we build laneway houses, full-size houses, duplexes. Uh, most of those were building to the passive house energy efficiency standard. And you posted the, your, I assume it's your hands, leafing through these pages. And on your post, you talked about the fact this is five pages of rules dedicated to the single family exterior design, if you're building something like that in the city of Vancouver. So what exactly were you leafing through and, and what is it that you're posting there? Yeah, that was those are the design bylaws or the the bylaws, the zoning bylaws for RS7, um, which is uh, one of 24 different uh, zoning bylaws that the city of Vancouver has to regulate uh, low-rise houses. Um, so we have this really crazy number of different zoning bylaws, and some of them, like RS7, go into really explicit detail about what you can and can't do with your house. Um, in this case, there there are rules about what materials you can and can't do, how far those materials have to wrap around the corner or the front of the house, um, the pitch of the roof, all, all of those things. And um, I've been working with this zoning for a number of years, and it's always driven me a little bit crazy that this one in particular is, is just so bad. 
So, and what kinds of things then, does it offer any guidance or I guess is it kind of trial and error, you know, what type of design, and we're talking about the exterior design here, you know what kind of exterior design will likely get approved or which ones might be flags for those who are holding all the approval power? Yeah, the the history of this zoning is that these things used to be guidelines that would then get interpreted by a planner. And in in order to try and make the process simpler, they they just put it into the bylaw itself. So all of a sudden, these things that were a little bit fuzzy became hard and fast rules. So now it says specifically, you know, you can do rock stucco, but you can't do metal cladding or something like that. Like it tells you exactly what you can and can't do um, over over the course of five pages. Have you had instances where you've put forward a proposal for something and it's been rejected because it doesn't fit into the guidelines? Yeah, in this case, uh, with this zone, um, we've submitted something and the planners have come back and said, you know, sorry, our, our hands are tied because these rules were put right into the bylaw. There's no wiggle room on them. So, you know, it's it's a bit frustrating because a lot of planners are, are pretty decent to work with in terms of doing something, you know, try to make a decent looking building. But in, in this case, um, instead of just cutting out these sections, they, they actually included them in the legal bylaws. So there's no wiggle room. And is the, the idea behind this, is it that the whatever's built in a neighborhood, that, that something that's built in a neighborhood should at least be not the same, but should be similar, should fit in with other buildings, pre-existing buildings? Yeah, that's, that's the motivating force behind a lot of this. Um, you have um, sort of uh, vocal folks in the community who, who feel that a certain style is the style that should be enforced within their neighborhood. Um, and in some cases, that is maybe a little specific heritage or character pocket neighborhood. In other cases, they're trying to do this citywide. Um, and those often tend to be kind of, you know, 1920s style, uh, Western colonial sort of architectural styles. It's, it's a very monolithic sort of approach. Um, so you understand where the intentions come from. The, the problem is that this ends up creating massive delays and really limiting the freedom of, of what we as designers and what our clients can do with their own homes. Right, because it made me think when I first saw this, it made me think of the, the Vancouver special in that when those were all being built, it seemed like it would be pretty easy to put forward a proposal for a Vancouver special and it would likely get rubber stamped. But if you wanted to do something a little different, that's when you might run into that red tape. Yeah, and it's funny because it's actually the Vancouver specials that created a lot of this backlash. I mean, they were quite popular and low cost to build and quick to build, but then a lot of the same character advocates really didn't like the look of them. And so that's when a bunch of our Vancouver's rules were changed to bring back basements and to bring back uh, rules around steeper pitched roofs and all these other kind of things where people were trying to sort of micromanage the aesthetics. Um, and we've we've seen the kind of knock-on implications of that is that um, it's gotten very, very time-consuming and, and slow. And there's also other problems in terms of baking in houses that are fundamentally inaccessible. Um, so all these other issues when we try to, to micromanage the aesthetics. 
And when we hear so often from the mayor, from some city councillors that they really want to tackle housing affordability, they want to make sure that things are being built. It doesn't sound like having five pages of rules when it comes to the exterior with absolutely no wiggle room is doing that. Doesn't it make things take a lot longer and then make them more expensive? It absolutely uh, makes them take longer. And, and this isn't even the worst offender. If you look at um, you know, if we try to do an infill, what they call a character home program, you have to do a, a separate development permit first, which takes an extra six or eight months along with neighbor notification. So we have some of these, you know, small lot, single family projects that have this epic approval process similar to what you would do for a condo tower. And so, you know, in the past, some, some counselors have said, oh, we need to expedite the planning but it's not good enough to just throw more staff hours at the existing process. We actually have to go in with our scissors and cut out some of the fat that is really holding things up. Is it like this in other cities or other municipalities where you've built these types of laneway homes? Uh, it, it really depends. You know, you go to some municipalities and their zoning might be a single page. It might be quite simple. Um, by contrast, we've been working on a project in San Francisco where we're trying to get a de- demolition permit for almost five years now. Um, so there, there definitely is, is a big spectrum in terms of how they deal with it. Um, with, with the laneway houses, you have, you know, Vancouver and the city of North Van have actually a, a decent approval process for laneway houses. Um, but if you go to New West or the district of North Vancouver, they have a really horrible process. Um, so it really varies municipality by municipality, which is one of the reasons why I'm hopeful that Dave Ebby can, um, you know, set some provincial minimum standards for zoning that work, you know, across the whole province so that we're not fighting this every municipality by every municipality. And when you say places like New West have a horrible process, what makes it horrible? Uh, You have to go through that extra development permit before you can even apply for the building permit. So that's an extra six to eight months and you have to show how the laneway house fits into the character of the na- of the lane. You know, you have to like draw pictures of the adjacent garages and things. And and the thing that's most appalling about this is that if you're building a mansion, the main house next door, you don't have to do that. And so, you know, for so many things, this is what I use as the kind of what I call the mansion test. You know, if if it's easier to do a freaking giant mansion to get a permit than it is to do a laneway house, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your zoning. What would make, like like you said, taking some scissors and cutting out parts of this, would it make it better, though, if it wasn't enshrined in this paper or the five pages and it was more uh, decided on by a case-by-case basis, or would that, too, cause delays? Uh, I think that there are some, we do need some flexibility. I usually prefer to have a very simple path and then a, a path with some flexibility, But in this case, I think we just need to cut out that exterior design section entirely. Um, You know, the the other example I used was in in the RS1 zone, where if you're doing a single family house, there's a full page of rules around the shape of the roof. And but if you're doing a duplex, there's a single sentence. There's one sentence. And so, you know, we we can see exactly how easy it is to take this and make it much more simple. We just need to let go from some of this you know, convoluted stuff we created in the 90s and that just kind of lives on like a zombie in our zoning. All right. Well, Bryn, we're going to leave it there for today. But thanks so much for being available to come on the show and talk more about this. I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon, but thank you. <laughs> thanks. Happy to rant anytime. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. That is Bryn Davidson.
Well, someone reminded me on social media earlier today that it is exactly two years since I sent out a tweet that got almost 90,000 likes. I've never had response like that before. For the most part, I find Twitter quite useless and a huge time waste. But that was an interesting day. And I'll share a bit more about that in a few moments. But that also got us to thinking about how rules have changed and about how things really have changed during the past two years. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that there were quarantine rules in place. There were people who were being told they had to go stay in quarantine hotels at their own expense. Well, my next guest is a small business owner in Vancouver. Joanna Milios owns the Granville Island Toy Company along with her husband. Both have importers licenses, which means that throughout this pandemic, even while the borders have been closed, they have been exempt because under the CBSA rules, they are persons in the trade or transportation sector who are important for the movement of goods or people. And this includes truck drivers, crew members on aircraft, and the list goes on. That is the statement. Well, that is the definition from about 10 months ago, about a year ago, when those border restrictions were fully in place. But because of the exemptions, Joanna Milios and her husband would travel across to their warehouse in Blaine to get items, to get goods that were shipped to her to be sold in her store. Well, that was until they were coming home one day and they were stopped by a CBSA agent. And she's joining me now to talk not only about what happened that day in the fallout, but what has just happened when it comes to the fine and the court case that was about to get underway. Joanna, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. So take us back for people who aren't familiar with what happened to you at the border. This was in April. You were the owner of a small business. You were getting some of the supplies. You had the exemption to go into Blaine, Washington. What happened? Well, my husband and I, who are both owners of our business, uh, went to go down and pick up some shipments to bring them across. And I did copious amounts of research to make sure with, you know, everything changing all the time that we were still uh, within the guidelines of importation, etc. And uh, I was quite satisfied after doing my review online that, yes, we could cross the border. So we went down. We were down in Blaine for 20 minutes uh, at our warehouse picking up our shipments came across to uh, process the paperwork and uh, the customs officer said, well, it doesn't take both of you. And I said, well, I do. It does take both of us. I said, because I have a back issue and I can't lift heavy boxes. So he's come to assist me with that. And I do all the, uh, the B3 forms to bring the product across. Next thing I know, they're handing him a $3,500 fine and wanting to force him into quarantine for 14 days. Um, it, it, it was just unbelievable. Um, I, I was flabbergasted by all of this. So we had a court date uh, set for February 28th, and I had submitted all our evidence to Crown Counsel saying, are we really wasting the court system's time here with this? Based on everything that's there uh, online and what it tells you, we were within our rights. Uh, to go down. So anyway, long story short, after, you know, 10 months of stress and not knowing what was going to happen with this case, because obviously I took it to court, there was no way we were paying out the fine out of even out of principle. Um, I'm I'm happy to report that it's the uh, 11th hour Crown Council decided to drop the charges, which we were extremely relieved to hear. And, And it was 
in reality, the right thing to do. That's what they should have done to begin with. This should, these cases should not be tying up the court system when they are, in fact, legitimate. Well, it's good to hear that they dropped the case against you, but that must have been stressful and time consuming, even having to fight that. Oh, absolutely. Um, it takes an emotional toll on you as well. It was to the point that I haven't even bothered importing anything for the last, uh, you know, 10, 11 months because uh, it just left such a bad taste in my mouth. And furthermore, when this all had occurred, uh, I reached out to CBSA to find out if I could somehow have the officer's decision reviewed only to be told that, no, you can't. When they make this kind of decision, it stands. So I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a second, what is wrong with this system when I can actually appeal the decision of the Supreme Court judge, but I can't appeal the decision of a CBSA officer? Hello? Isn't there something wrong with that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that that uh, just seems so odd. So, uh, take us back though. That moment when the CBSA officer said, "No, only one of you can go," and you said, "Wait, I've done my research. Show me where the rule says only one of us can go because we're both business owners. We both have the exemption for being people in in trade or transportation." How, what did the the CBSA officer? How did the the officer back up the claim that only one of you could go? He just said it was at his discretion and up to his determination as to uh, what he chose to believe. He did mention to me that, you know, a lot of couples were using um, the importation, exportation exemption as an excuse to go down and, you know, go around, go for a day shopping trip, for example, to Bellingham or whatever. And I said to him, well, I can understand that, but I have proof right here that we only really were at uh, our warehouse for 20 minutes and, and have returned. Um, I have a Mile IQ app that tracks our mileage, you know, on our cars for CRA purposes for tax year every year. And I even said to him, like, call the U.S. Border Security to see what time we crossed. Here's my Mile IQ app. You can see what time we crossed the U.S. border, you know, and came back. But this guy wasn't having it. You know, so uh, what was interesting to me as well is um, they didn't force my husband to go to a quarantine hotel. They made him come home and quarantine, which to me, again, was like, how is this serving the public good by letting him come home with me? Uh, if you really believe he's a, he's a risk to public safety because of COVID, it just made no sense all the way around. But so he did have to, I guess, follow that rule, or did he have to come home then and spend the next 14 days at home? Yes, he came home and spent the next 14 days at home, because the last thing you want is to knock on the door being checked. Of course, in the whole time, I think they probably looked at it and said, yeah, this is kind of bogus, because nobody ever called or even came by to, to see if he was actually here. And did you pay the fine or did you didn't have to pay it no, because you were fighting it? Not, right. No, absolutely not. No, I, I just I just out of, um, you know, my own ethical values, I was like, no, I'm not paying this. I'm definitely disputing it. So we uh, we applied to the courts to uh, have it heard in court. Um, and thankfully, we didn't have to go down that road, although I was very confident uh, that even if we did have to go down that road, that we would win the case um, based on the evidence that I had. I had even written the public health authority after this all occurred, 
saying to them, these are the circumstances. This is what I have read online. Is there any reason why both of us would not be able to cross the border to pick up our shipments and bring them back? We even live in the same household. Um, and uh, PHAC wrote me back, which is public health authority, saying, we don't see any reason why you both can't cross. So I had that little uh, card in my back pocket as well for court, but thankfully we didn't have to go down that road. So when you found out at the 11th hour, 10 months into this, uh, the eve of the court date that it was being dropped, did they say why they had suddenly decided that uh, the day before they wouldn't go forward with it? No, and to be honest, I didn't even ask because I didn't care. I was just so happy that the, the right thing had been done. Um, and it, throughout this whole process, a couple of times when we had gone to court, we met another couple who have a business on Commercial Drive, a clothing store, and uh, the same thing for them. They were targeted by the exact same customs officer who did the same thing to them, only her husband had to go to a quarantine hotel, which is what made me scratch my head as well. It seems kind of like the rules were being applied not all evenly and equally it was kind of at the discretion of the customs officer where he wanted to send you um so their charges were dropped as well so clearly um a lot of these cases where uh people were forced into quarantine wrongfully um are being dropped uh but you know i while i was curious on one hand to ask them on what basis we had submitted all our evidence so clearly we could prove we didn't break the law we didn't break public health authority order we were under the guidelines set out by the public health authority Right. It must seem odd, too, or at least it seems odd to me that here we have a scenario where the U.S. border guards had no problem letting you into that country as essential workers with an exemption. But it was the Canadian border guards that had an issue letting you come back home. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're you're exempt on one side, but you're not exempt on the other. What's with that? That makes absolutely no sense. What are your concern or what advice would you give then? Like you say, you, you've talked to another couple that uh, was even worse. The one, uh, the one, the husband saying having to go to a quarantine hotel. Uh, the rules are changing now, but there are still rules in place. What advice do you have for others that might be in a similar scenario, have that exemption, and be planning cross border trips? Uh, well, you know, have all your eyes dotted and your T's crossed take the documentation with you where it says there is an exemption. I was trying to point that out to the border officer on, on, by showing him on my phone, like this is the piece that I've read. Where, where does it say both of us can't cross the border? At the end of the day, I think if, uh, at this point, I think things have, have been relaxed somewhat now. Um, but as long as you have all your homework done and you go to import and you run into this situation, Obviously, uh, my case and the other couple's case is precedent setting, I I would think, to say, no, these charges were dropped, exact same scenario. So chances are uh, you won't have to pay a fine as long as you go ahead and dispute it and, you know, tie up a little bit of our court system time like they have any more time. (laughs) Yeah, it's just it's just shocking. Will you return to going back to your warehouse and to going across the border to pick up uh, things for your store? Yeah, absolutely. I will now that uh, everything's uh, said and done. But it was a 10-month process where I just I, I had no desire to go 
order anything and pick it up and bring it back because of all of this that was going on. It, it really kind of terrified me. <laughs> yeah, no, no surprise there for sure. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for talking about this and glad that things worked out. But thanks for talking about this and raising awareness for others. My pleasure. I don't want to see any other small business owner go through what I went through because it uh, it really does take an emotional toll on you, especially when you're trying to deal with keeping your business afloat during these times and, you know, doing the best and keeping your staff employed. So <laughs> as if that's not enough stress already. <laughs> so I'm just glad it's all said and done and we came out on the other end just fine.